Uh, we are continuing our series this morning in the Gospel of Jacob. Uh, Jacob is not a book in the Bible, it is in the book of Genesis. But we have been showing the Gospel in the lives of these many people that we see in the book of Genesis. And that's the way we wanted to work through that book. The title for today's message is Stairway to Heaven. There's a lady who's sure all that glitters is gold. And she's buying a stairway to heaven. When she gets there, she knows if the stores are all closed, with a word she can get what she came for. Oh, oh. And she's buying a stairway to heaven. These words were written in 1971 by the great guitarist Jimmy Page and singer Robert Plant. The song is, of course, Stairway to Heaven by Led Zeppelin. In this song, Robert Plant sings about two paths, one where you could buy your way in life, perhaps attempting to buy your way to heaven, and the other path, the one worth taking, is the way of nature, and there's still time to take that path. The reality is that neither path is the way to life. And no, you cannot buy a stairway to heaven. But in our passage today, we'll see a stairway to heaven. Hence the title. So today we're going to look at Jacob's dream and Jacob's response as we continue to tell his story. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you uh, for bringing us together today to sing together and to hear your word and to be encouraged, to encourage one another, to love one another. Lord, I pray uh, that as we continue this morning, as we listen to this message, Lord, that our hearts would be built up in faith and that we would depart from here uh, being encouraged and equipped and built up. Built up to love you and to love one another. And we thank you for your work in us. In Jesus' name, amen. So Jacob's dream. Uh, first of all, last week we were introduced to Jacob, the heel, the schemer. We saw his life fall apart by the end of chapter 27. His mother uh, had convinced him to deceive his father, Isaac, into giving him the blessing. And this blessing was something that Isaac was going to pronounce over Esau, his firstborn. Jacob had already stolen the birthright. Now he has stolen the blessing. Their plan worked, and Jacob deceived Isaac. And so by the end of chapter 27, we find this family shattered. Esau is threatening Jacob's life. Isaac is literally shaking, and Rebekah must send the son she favored, Jacob, away. A way to escape being killed by Esau, but also to find himself a wife from Rebekah's family. And so chapter 28 continues that story, perhaps just moments later. Isaac calls Jacob back in. He tells him not to marry a Canaanite woman, but to go back to Rebekah's family to find a wife. Isaac blesses him again. Um, with some of the same language as this first blessing that he received in chapter 27, uh, but also some familiar language if you've read through the book of Genesis. Be fruitful and multiply. Take the land of your sojourning. And then Jacob departs. Now, he may have expected, like Rebekah and Isaac, that he would be gone a few days. Um, when Isaac, uh, well, when, when Abraham had sent his servant to find a wife for Isaac, um, his servant was gone probably for somewhere around a month or two, a couple months at the most. Maybe they thought that's what this would be. 
Jacob would return 20 years later. Esau, perhaps hearing all of this, remember, um, tents are much thinner than walls, kind of hear everything being discussed. He hears this, and maybe he's still holding out hope that there's something for him, some kind of blessing. He decides to marry one of his father's half-brother, Ishmael's daughters. So, you know, he hears Isaac say, marry one of Rebekah's family. So he goes, okay, well, I could always marry one of my brother, or my my dad's family members. Um, Different time, different time. It doesn't improve things for him. We won't hear any more from Esau for quite some time. Picking up the account in Genesis 28, verse 10, reading through verse 15. If you have your Bibles, turn there. If not, it'll be on the screen. Beginning in verse 10, Jacob left Beersheba and went towards Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night. Because the sun had set, taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven, and behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you, and you will and will keep you wherever you go, and will bring you back to the land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. One of the many themes that we see throughout scriptures is the theme of exile. We see it all the way back at the very end of Genesis three, when God kicked Adam and Eve out of the garden. And we've been exiles ever since, chasing after Eden. Abraham is called to live as an exile, to leave behind his home. Later, the children of Israel are living in Egypt as exiles. And after 400 years, they're finally freed and they begin their exodus, the road out of exile. Exile will come up again when the southern kingdom of Israel, then called Judah, is exiled to Babylon. Even in the New Testament, the theme of exile is present. Jesus came and dwelt among us. He tabernacled. He camped, if you will. He lived as an exile away from his home. And believers in Christ are living, living even now as exiles. This world is not our home. We are sojourners and exiles in this world, as Peter describes us in his first epistle. We are seeking the city to come whose builder and maker is God. In today's passage, we see Israel's first exile. Though not yet a nation, Jacob, or Israel, is sent into exile. We'll see in a couple weeks when Jacob becomes Israel. He's fled his home. He's heading north to Haran. We've talked about this several weeks back. Uh, Haran from Beersheba is approximately like 460 miles, quite the journey. Uh, But he stops off at a certain place. The Hebrew literally says he happened upon the place. And this reveals a little something about what's going on. Jacob happened upon. He decided to stop off here, get a little sleep before continuing on with his journey. But unbeknownst to Jacob, God has led him here to the place. This is a special place. And it's not a special place just because of geography. 
But to Jacob and to anyone else in this moment, it really wasn't a special place. It was just random. It didn't even have a name yet. Jacob is in the middle of nowhere with nothing. Not even a pillow. And so already we're seeing something about God's ways. Even in the middle of nowhere and when you have nothing, God comes to you. Jacob lays his head down on this rock. Who does that? Right? Who does that? I mean, I, I might use my arm first, not this, not this arm. It might have been a real soft rock. I don't know. So why is this here? Why do we have this? Well, I think it shows us the extent of what Jacob was left with. I said nothing, but it's not really nothing until you're sleeping on a rock. His life has fallen apart to the point of having to camp in the middle of nowhere with nothing. On the run. Nothing but a rock. He got what he wanted. He got the birthright, the blessing. He's the head of the family. And here he is penniless with a rock for a pillow. Everything's fallen apart. Maybe as he's been walking, he's been thinking, God, where were you in all of this? He had schemed to get the blessing of his father, which in reality is the blessing of God. And he has it, but everything's a mess. Perhaps he's not even had a single thought about God. It does seem clear, at least when he comes to this place, that he's just happened upon, he's not searching for God. He's just trying to catch a nap. He falls asleep, and he has this amazing dream vision. Verse 12, Behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. So what does he see here? Well, first, there's this ladder, or more accurately, a stairway. He sees a stairway, and the angels going up and coming back down. He's seeing something about the unseen world. We, like Jacob, look at what we can see, and sometimes we're driven to despair. By circumstances, by situations that we're in, we despair. Jacob is despairing. He feels distant from family. Maybe he feels distant from God. He feels like his world has ended. And God reveals through this dream what's really going on. God's power and his royal majesty, his sovereignty is always working everywhere. He sees this stairway and the indication is that it's, it's huge. Angels going up and down. These are God's messengers and attendants, and they're busy about the work that God has for them. We should also note, Jacob wakes up afraid. Again, if you were here a while back, um, angels are not what we often picture them to be. They don't seem to have flowing locks and a radiant glow. They're terrifying. Read Ezekiel's account of what they look like. He describes some of the angels as just being wheels with eyes. That's crazy stuff. But this is what he's seeing, and he's terrified. He's seeing in this vision what is unseen in the physical. There's another example of this in 2 Kings chapter 6. There, the prophet Elisha and his servant are in the city of Dothan. And the king of Syria wants to capture Elisha. So he sends horses and chariots and a great army to surround the city that he's in. He wants one man, and he sends his entire army. 
Elisha and his servant wake up and find themselves surrounded, and the servant is afraid, not Elisha. 2 Kings 6, 16 and 17, this is what happens. Elisha said, do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountains, behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. So the servant's eyes are open to see this angelic host surrounding the Syrian army. No wonder Elisha is so confident here. The story ends with God blinding the Syrians and Elisha going to the Syrians and convincing them that they're in the wrong place. And then he leads them to Samaria. Pretty cool. You know, we cannot see all these things clearly, but God's presence is all around. Now, when I talk about God's sovereignty, this is partially what I'm talking about. Of course, it encompasses far more than just God's presence, but it certainly includes this. The reason we don't have to fear life circumstances is not that God has promised us never to go through anything, but that he is absolutely with us in it, even if we can't see. And yes, he is absolutely more powerful than anything else in this world. Anything that we'll face. But it's in these moments when we're in exile, when we're afraid, and when we cannot see what God is doing, and he feels distant, that God is often doing his most defining work in our lives. God is not remote or distant. He is already working. But there are days when it is really, really hard. There are days when you haven't been a Jacob, when you haven't been grabbing people's heels to trip them up, and yet you're in the middle of a moment like this. And it doesn't feel like God is anywhere to be seen. There are days when you wake up and you're just going, I think I'm going to stay here for a bit in bed. I want to encourage you this morning in the midst of exhaustion, in the midst of pain, in the midst of foes against you, God is absolutely with you. All have asked me this morning before I walked up here, why do you have to preach? And there are moments when I really don't know if I should. This week has been incredibly hard. And I know it's not just me. I think there's a lot of you who are dealing with some really tough things. Some of which I've heard, some of which I haven't heard. I hope that maybe the reason I got up here this morning to preach is so you could be encouraged. That God is with you despite what's going on around you. Despite the exhaustion. Despite the feeling of being attacked. Despite the feeling of not knowing what the next step is. As we're going to see in a moment, God is right there beside you. 
Because even in this vision, God comes so near to Jacob. As Jacob is lying on the ground, I didn't plan this. (laughs) This is what God does. He doesn't stand at the top of the stairway going, hey, if you can just come up here. He comes and stands over him. Verses 13 through 15, and behold, the Lord stood above it. Should be translated, the Lord stood above him. He said, I'm the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie. I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall, be, shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. So a lot of the English translations say the Lord stood above it, like it's meaning the stairway or the ladder. Um, but the Hebrew says literally, the Lord, behold, the Lord stood beside or above him. I mean, God came down the stairway and stood beside Jacob and he looked down at him as he was lying on the ground. And Jacob is seeing all this in his vision. He, Eyes open. Oh, hello. (laughs) God has led the heel, Jacob, to this special place. And though he isn't seeking God, God comes to him. And he shows him some amazing things. And then in a posture of intimacy and nearness, he stands over him. Jacob deserves rebuke. He deserves justice. He deserves punishment if you read through chapter 27. But God comes to him and speaks promises to him. The promises that God speaks are another instance of God renewing his promise to this family. He did so with Abraham many times. And then he did so personally for Sarah. And then with Isaac. And here he does the same for Jacob. Jacob had the blessing from Isaac, which contained the blessing of the Abrahamic covenant. But he needs to hear it from God himself. You know, it's good to hear about God, right? But you need to hear from him. You need to have a relationship with him. We must also remember Genesis 15 and how God cut the covenant himself. It's been several weeks, but if you remember, we, we, we kind of physically demonstrated a little bit of that. I had uh, the Carey boys give me a hand with that. There, God walked through the pieces of sacrificed animals to bear the curse, to demonstrate that he would bear the curse should Abraham or his offspring fail to keep the covenant. And so God has given this same promise to Jacob. This is the reason why Jacob wasn't smushed when he acted like a dweeb. Here's a 1980s word for you. God promises the land that Jacob is on, and just as God promised Abraham and Isaac, his offspring will be like the dust of the earth. They'll be numerous. The promise of the Messiah is here as well. In you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And we can trace the thread of the story of redemption as it continues, from Adam to Noah to Abraham to Isaac to Jacob. We'll see it in the sons of of Jacob in Judah and in Joseph, and we'll see it throughout the time of um, 
Exodus, Joshua, all the rest of the Old Testament, the thread of redemption is weaving through. But here Jacob is alone, but he gets these amazing promises from God, promises of presence, of protection. Though here he's unprotected, God will keep him and protect him. Though he has nothing, God promises to bring him back to this land, and he will have this land that has been promised to him. God is going to be with Jacob. He's going to keep him. He's going to bring him home. So how does Jacob respond to such an amazing vision? Surely it's really good. Let's take a look. Jacob's response, let's read about this in verses 16 through 22. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at the first. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace. Then the Lord shall be my God. And so this stone, which I've set up for a pillar shall be God's house and all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. Jacob wakes up. He says, the Lord is in this place and he's afraid. He calls the place, the house of God and the gate of God, Bethel or Bethel means the house of God. In verse 19, the author Moses writes that the city was Luz at the first. And in his commentary, John Calvin writes about this place, and he says that when Jacob arrived and slept there, there was nothing and it was nowhere. Later on, the Canaanites built a city, and not knowing that Jacob called it Bethel, they named it Luz. And over 400 years later, when Joshua led the people of Israel into the promised land, the tribe of Ephraim settled here, and renamed it Bethel, as Jacob had called it. But in this moment, there's nothing. Jacob takes the rock, his pillow, from that night, and he sets it up as a monument, a memorial of what God did there. This is a good thing. He wants to remember God's promises and the revelation of God's presence when he returns. He's thinking a month from now. He sets the rock up as a pillar. He anoints it with oil. Stones like these appear throughout the the Old Testament, As author Chad Bird puts it, they stand as a mute witness to a promise, a reminder. Jacob then makes a vow, and can we be honest, it's kind of a stupid vow. If God does all these things that he has promised, all these good things, then he will be my God. And then I will give him a full tenth of all that he gives. So generous. Jacob's response is just so bad. It's... It's kind of ridiculous. God, unsought for, comes to this schemer, this deceiver, and he says, I love you. I'm with you. I'll keep you. Not if you do these things, I will love you. He shows him a vision of the angels of heaven coming down and going back up a stairway. They're coming to him. And then God standing next to him. All to say, I'm with you. I love you. I'm going to bless you. Not if you climb these stairs to me. Not if you work the religious ladder, climbing rung to rung to get to me. Not if. No, you have me. I have come to you. 
And Jacob says, if. If you do these things, then I'll follow you. But isn't this what we so often do? God has come to us in love and we respond with the ifs. God doesn't bring the ifs. We do. And most of the time we add them for ourselves, ifs that I have to do. They're not ifs that God has to do. They're the ones that I'm going to do. If I can try really hard, I'll guarantee that God will love me. Despite that he said he loves me, if I do these things, God will love me. If I get better at reading the word, then God will love me more. Every world religion has a stairway, so to speak, to a God. But in every one of them, it's about you climbing the stairs to get to this God, to get to their heaven, whatever it is, and prove your worthiness to him. And even, even in Judaism and Christianity, we tend to make it about a stairway to God. We'll get to God. But that's not how God works. Even when you as a believer respond to God's love with half-hearted efforts like Jacob here, God won't turn away from you. He continues to stand over you, drawing you, working in your heart. He came for the half-hearted, for the no-hearted, to make you wholehearted, his. Jacob left because of his deception and the brokenness that it caused. He has done everything wrong and nothing right. He's on the run, and yet God has appeared to him in an awesome way. God promised to bless him despite his sin. Does Jacob deserve any of this kindness and love from God? Well, no, he doesn't. But that's the point of the story. If the moral of last week's passage was God's scandalous grace, then chapter 28 is the exclamation point driving that home. God is always working in ways that are opposite of what we would expect him to do. God is love, mercy, and grace, and so he gives to sinners what they don't deserve, and it's not based on all the ifs that we can think of. This term in verse 17, gate of heaven, is a callback, if you will, uh, drawing the reader's attention back to Genesis 11, when a group of people built a tower to try to get to heaven. They called it Babel which in many Near Eastern languages means gate of heaven. Now, this is not the same physical location. Jacob is in Canaan, modern-day Israel, and Babel would be in modern-day Iraq. The Tower of Babel would have been a ziggurat, a type of pyramid that on one side has a great stone stairway to heaven. Ziggurats throughout the East were built for their various gods, various religions, There, the faithful would climb the stairs to bring about blessing for family, blessing for their crops, whatever. All these temples, all these religions, they built these things so that man could ascend to the gods. And here God gives Jacob and to all of us who read it, a revolutionary image. God does not have a stairway for you to ascend. He has a stairway between heaven and earth And it's so that he can come to us. It's a stairway of grace. God in his grace and mercy comes to nowhere people with nothing left who don't deserve him and he gives them himself 
and his promises. He comes to you and stands over you and gives you his unconditional love. You see, it's not actually a stairway to heaven. It's a stairway from heaven. So how does the gospel of Jacob apply to our lives? There's four things I want to draw your attention to as we close. First, Jacob went into exile. As I mentioned earlier, it is in exile that God often does the most defining work in our lives. It's Jesus who is working in our exile. And we can trust him in that because Jesus first went into exile on our behalf. He was in the grave for three days, three nights, and he rose from the dead. He came back. He's gone to be in the presence of his father, and one day he will come back again for us. So when you feel like you're wading into waters that are too deep for you and you're surrounded by darkness, just remember that Jesus is right there in it with you. He's using life's painful circumstances to work good in you and for you. He's producing in you more of himself. Secondly, we saw that Jacob was not dealt with according to his sin. This is scandalous grace. But grace without scandal ceases to be grace. Grace is for the undeserving. It's the very definition of the word. Psalm 103, verse 10, the words of David, another mess maker. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. God deals with sinners with grace and mercy. Grace is his love and favor for undeserving people. It is getting something we don't deserve. God's mercy is not getting what we did deserve, which was God's wrath for our sin. Through Jesus, there's a way. He's made a way for us to have his life, his grace, his mercy, and his love. Believe on him. We, like Jacob, like the prodigal son, we stumble around, fumbling with the flesh, if you will. But we live and breathe every moment by God's great mercy and grace. Jesus came to save the stumbling and the fumbling. <clears throat> he came to save the wretches of this world. And grace opens our eyes to see that that's us. That's us. Luke 19.10, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Thirdly, in this vision, Jacob saw a great stairway from heaven connecting to earth. Perhaps some of you remembered another stairway mentioned in the book of John. John 1, 43 through 51. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph, seems like Philip had an inkling of what was happening already. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? Jesus answered, before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Whatever it was that Nathanael was doing under the fig tree, we don't know. But Jesus knew. And that was enough to convince Nathanael. Maybe he was thinking to himself in that moment about the Messiah to come. 
I don't know. Maybe he was doing something crazy. But what stands out about Jesus' response is not the part about seeing him under the fig tree. It's this. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now, I don't know for sure if there is a physical stairway or if what we've seen in Jacob's vision was just a metaphor. We do know that God can be anywhere, and as he already is everywhere, through his spirit. But what has happened to Jacob was just a foreshadowing of who Jesus is. Jesus is saying, referencing this story subtly, he's saying that this stairway which binds heaven to earth by which the angels of God go about their work, this is the means by which God comes to man. Jesus is saying, I am the stairway. He doesn't stand at the top of the stairway and shout out to all of us, this is what you have to do to get to me. Rather, he himself is the stairway. And somehow at the same time, he comes down to us. Because the real gate of heaven is not at the top of a ziggurat. The real gate of heaven is not Bethel. The gate of heaven is a person, and it's Jesus. He opened the way for us by being the way, by coming to us in our sin. Jesus doesn't point to the stairway. He is the stairway. The law pointed to the stairs, but Jesus is the stairs. He fulfilled all that the law commanded. He didn't live simply to be an example of taking the stairs. This is what it looks like to take the stairs. No, he comes to live and to die for you so that heaven can be opened to you. So he could come into your life and be your life. He comes to you in your nowhere with all your nothing. And by his scandalous grace, he makes you his home. The house of God. And that's the final application. Jesus makes you his home. The name Bethel is a great name for a church. But we must remember that church buildings, as leaky as they are, I mean, as good as they are, (laughs) are not the houses of God. This is not the house of the Lord. You are. You are Bethel. You are all Bethels. Where is the house of God? It's where Christ is. Through his spirit, he is in each and every believer. And yet this physical body is a temporary Bethel. Because one day, the truer and greater Bethel will come. Jesus will return for his bride and he will dwell with us forever and he will make his home among us and we will live forever in his presence. We will have his word forever. We will have his life forever. No end. Forever Bethel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Thank you for your presence. Thank you for being with us when it seems like there's no one with us. When it seems like we're alone. When it seems like we're in the middle of nowhere and all we've got left is a rock for a pillow. Thank you for your son Jesus who lives within us. Thank you for your life and your love. 
Father, I don't know what everybody's going through this morning, but I do know absolutely that you do know what everything, what everyone's going through, all the different struggles, all the difficulties, all the darkness, better than we ourselves even know. God, I would just ask you, as Elisha prayed in 2 Kings, for those who are struggling this morning, would you open our eyes to see, to see what we can't see right now, to have a glimpse, even if just for a moment, of your presence with us. Whether you choose to do that through our brothers and sisters in Christ, through a song, through a word, through someone praying for us, however you choose to do that, Lord. As we quiet our spirits here just for a few moments, would you open our eyes to see your presence? We thank you.